0: Good morning everyone it is great to see you Um, you know I, I suppose I should say something about the weather but like you're Chicagoans you just you know how to do winter I mean I have so much respect for you which is fantastic. Uh, Eric, thanks for that uh, kind introduction. Um, I do live in California now, but our roots are in the Midwest. Uh, my family grew up in Milwaukee. I'm going to see my mom and dad uh, later this week, which is a real, which is a real gift. So um, it's great to, to be here. I'm grateful for Pastor Dan. Um, he's been a leader and a key voice. Uh, it's some really crucial times at Fuller Theological Seminary, and so I'm grateful for him. And Pastor Steve is uh, one of my students, uh, doctoral students in our doctoral program at Fuller. So, um, so I uh, I pay close attention to your church. Um, I'm grateful for the ministry um, that you do here and the light that you are to the Chicagoland area. And it's a privilege. Um, to be uh, with you today in person and I know that some of you are online um, sitting cozily on a couch drink an extra cup of coffee for me uh, we see you I mean not literally but I know you see us and um, we just want to acknowledge your your presence um, there as well um, as Eric mentioned, um, I do a lot of things associated um, with thinking about the church, thinking about young people, thinking about intergenerational ministry, thinking about families, um, and I have the privilege um, to enter a number of conversations. Some of the conversations I have are with um, uh, older types and others are with younger types, and I'm going to let you define whether you're an older type or an under type. I'm not going to go there, um, but what I find is that when I talk with older types and I talk with church leaders, I find that when I ask them about young people, they typically say, we love young people. We, we care about them. We, we want them to thrive. We want our faith communities to be places where young people feel welcomed and served and loved and supported, okay, which I think is great. Uh, and as I talk with younger types, whoever they may be, uh, I find that as I get into serious conversations with them, they tell me, they'll say, Steve, we have deep respect for the church, We're really grateful for those of us that maybe grew up in the church for the investment and the love and the mentoring that we've experienced um, growing up in a particular church. And they tell me of fond memories that they've had with their church. So I find this interesting. We have older types that are like, we love young people. And we have younger types that are saying, we love church communities and the older people that have poured into us. Uh, but you don't need to be a researcher um, to read social media or the news where we find that there has been a decline in church attendance, um, that young people aren't necessarily showing up uh, in churches and faith communities. And I'm struck by that as a teacher and as a researcher where we have. The older types saying we love young people, and we have the younger types saying, you know, we really have a lot of respect for the older types, but we can't seem to get it uh, together. And I ask myself, why? It's not out of. Good intention. It's not out of genuine love. It seems like something else might be going on there. Now, if I could speculate, I, I sometimes wonder this. I sometimes wonder if there are times um, where we want to somehow bring people together in programmatic spaces. Now, there's nothing wrong with programming, but we sort of want to solve the problem by coming up with the right program or the right music or the right approach to somehow kind of convince everybody um, to get together. But I'm not sure that anybody is looking for programming Spaces, I actually think they're looking for relational room, a, a, a reconnecting, a, a, a chance for us to see each other uh, well. And I, I think that as I think about this idea, I actually think the Apostle Paul speaks to this in, uh, in his letter, uh, to, the second letter to Timothy. And uh, I'm just going to read it for you. I'm not memorizing it. It's on my screen, but you can just uh, either follow along in your Bibles or you can listen to my winsome voice. It's 2 Timothy 2, uh, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And Paul says as he's writing to Timothy this, You, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will be also qualified to teach others. Join me in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete <coughs> excuse me does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules the hard working farmer should be the first to receive the share of the crops reflect on what i'm saying for the lord will give you insight into all this and then he says this remember jesus christ raised from the dead descended from david this is my gospel So it's interesting that as we hear uh, and sort of jump into this conversation with Paul and Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy um, this letter saying, uh, look, we want to live out the gospel. We seem to live out this gospel by embodying a certain way of living out the gospel. But Paul also says this. He says, join me in doing this. This is not Paul dictating to Timothy all the things that he should do. It's not Timothy sitting back going, Paul, you know, prove to me what needs to happen. He's saying we have to do this together. And what are we to do together? We are to live out this gospel. We are to live out this good news through expressing what he gives as three metaphors, that of a soldier, of an athlete, and as a farmer. So um, I know it's cold. I know that there's a, I talk with lots of words, that I talk kind of fast, but I want to leave you with just three things that I want you to think about um, as you go home today. I want to invite you to think about who you might say to someone that you love and care about, I, uh, is this, is I'm for you, I'm with you, and I believe in you. I'm for you, I'm with you, I believe in you. I believe these phrases allow us to create the relational room that allows us together to express what the gospel is all about because the gospel is more than words. It is an embodied experience that is um, that is capsulated through uh, the church and us um, living a life um, together. So let's try to unpack each of these phrases by thinking about these metaphors that Paul gives for us. The first one that he talks about is this idea of a soldier. Paul says that a good soldier follows uh, his commander and um, doesn't get uh, entangled in civilian affairs. Now, a lot of times when we think about soldiers, we think about... Um, sort of epic battles, right? Going out and fighting, there's heroism, there's action, there's everything that you want in a good Hollywood movie. The reality is, is that as the Roman Empire expanded and they would annex small towns along the way, they would have to place soldiers in these small towns to keep the peace and to protect the people. So uh, a Roman soldier's life wasn't actually that exciting. The majority of their time was spent standing on the corner keeping the peace and protecting the people. Now imagine that scene. A Roman soldier in their Roman guard with the authority of Rome on them is standing at the corner. And they have in that moment the opportunity to do one of two things. They can use the authority and power that they have to do what they have been commanded to do, to keep the peace and protect the people, or they can use the power and authority that's been given to them to serve themselves by taking bribes and basically using their power to get what they want. They got entangled in civilian affairs. Now, we're not Roman soldiers, but I guarantee this, that the power that the Roman soldier has also is something that we all have. We all have power. We have power of finances, we have power of life experience, we have power of talent, we have power simply because where we've raised and how we've been raised, there's been opportunity that has been afforded to us that allows us to have some power. So the issue is not whether or not we have power or not. The issue, according to Paul, is how do we use the power that we have? Am I using the power for the benefit of others, or am I using my power for the benefit of myself? Now, what I find interesting is that I think sometimes we we don't even realize that we do this, but sometimes Sometimes we can use this power for the benefit of myself, and I don't always pick up on it. And I find this in two particular ways. The first way is that sometimes we use our power actively to actually um, move our agenda forward and try to silence other people's agendas. I'd call this propaganda. This is uh, when we are unwilling to listen to the perspective of somebody else. We are definitely worried about what someone else might say or a differing point of view. So what often do we do is we shut down that other perspective or we ignore that other perspective in order to push our agenda so that our voice comes through and the other person's doesn't come through. Unfortunately, I think in a lot of faith communities, not this one, but others, I think there can be times where instead of the gospel being preached, there's a lot more propaganda happening out there. And I think that's really, really troubling to a lot of young people. Now there's a passive form of of using our power for ourselves as well, and I would just call this privilege. Sometimes we live in a situation where the things that are happening in the world, even the things um, that were prayed for this morning, we can actually think about them and say, wow, that's really, really bad. But we can go on and live our lives as though those things really didn't uh, matter. The privilege that we have allows us to sometimes float above the real challenges in our world today and what can happen happen is, is that we can be unmoved by those challenges, and therefore when we are unmoved and we don't see those problems, we end up not doing anything about them. The power that we have through our privilege keeps us from actually seeing the needs of those that we love and those that are around us. Paul says, when we use our power for ourselves, that is not the gospel. When we use our power for others, then we are expressing the gospel. And as I think about that, as we think about creating this relational room and thinking about what it means to proclaim the gospel, I think we just need to recognize the fact that maybe the best way that we can proclaim the gospel is to emphatically say to the people that we love around us, I am for you. I see you. Your story matters. Your perspective, even if it's different than mine, is still a perspective and it comes from somewhere that I need to understand in order for me to appreciate you. I find that a lot of times in churches, young people feel welcomed in their churches, but sometimes they don't feel heard in their churches, and so they don't feel like they belong. And so what I think we need to do is think about how can we use our power for the benefits of others. Quite simply, as we think about the relationships with those closest to to, to us, maybe using our power is simply being the first one to pick up the phone. Instead of waiting for someone to come to me, how might I use my power to pick up the phone and say, hey, I was thinking about you. I care about you. I just want you to know that maybe there's been a little bit of distance between us, but I am for you. And I believe that when we do that, we activate the gospel and we actually echo the very words of Jesus who on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread and took the cup and shared it with his disciples, some of whom would betray him and said, this is my body and blood for you. You know, when we say I'm for you to each other, we activate the gospel and the gospel becomes good news for everyone. And that is really, really good news. Soldiers, I'm for you. How about athletes? I'm with you. We read from the passage Paul saying, hey, no one... Um, <coughs> Uh, gets the crown unless they complete by, compete by the rules, and I think one of the things that maybe paul 's getting at here is this is you know a lot of times when we think about like I know football 's going out and everything right now, we always think about the big game, but we don 't always think about the training that happens um, before anybody else gets up in the morning the, the effort that is given to be dedicated to a discipline in order to be one 's uh, best and so there 's a discipline that comes with leaning in toward that on top of that, most sports have a team component to it, even running as a team component to it as you think about cross country or whatever so there's this element of not only being connected and dedicated to a support but there's also this element of element of being dedicated and to connect and connected to each other and i think this is true in our spiritual lives as well we don't live and follow jesus on our own when i'm connected with jesus i'm connected with my community and we are bound uh, together which is a beautiful sentimental statement but it's also dreadfully scary Some of the research would suggest that when we think about our faith and doubt experiences, there's a contagiousness to it. So if I express my doubt to you, or I have questions that I don't know how to answer, and I share them with you, and I feel the sense of anxiousness or uncertainty, oftentimes what can happen is the people that love me actually will feel anxious and uncertain as well. And what they will try to do is shut down my anxiousness and uncertainty so that they don't feel anxious and uncertain. You see what happens there? There's a contagiousness with there and we all feel it. Parents, if your kids are going through something and you freak out about it, what do you do? You actually feel it yourselves, right? We feel the anxiety and the pain and the pressure from those that we love because we are inextricably bound to each other. Now, when we are bound in that way, we are oftentimes faced with another key moment. It's in that moment when someone is going through a difficult, challenging time where I can do one of two things. I can step toward that person and say, I'm with you, or I can step Let me try to give you an example, maybe um, using uh, an athletic example since we're talking about athletes. Uh, Eric mentioned that I am uh, a marathon runner. Please don't hold that against me. You probably are like, oh boy. Okay. So um, my very first marathon was actually in Chicago. I have deep love for um, Chicago and uh, the first marathon, and I've tried to uh, keep uh, doing that. But um, for those of you that run or know anything about marathons, basically it's not rocket science. You're just teaching your body to run for a long time. Um, And so uh, running for a long time is 15 to 20 miles, training run and all that comes with that. And there's a place in Pasadena where I live where there's a 5K loop. It's like a 3.1 mile loop that I run, which is really, really great. But if you're running 15, 16, 17, 20 miles, that loop is a lot of times around, uh, you know, I'm running a lot of times around that, that loop, okay? Now, there, let me just tell you something about running culture. Like when you're running and you see another runner, you do like this running thing, and it's, it's called the runner's nod. You just go, okay? It's not a big deal, but it's just a way of saying, I see you, you see me, we're both running, you know, we care about each other. But if I'm running counterclockwise in a loop and I see another runner that's running and we are running longer miles and we start running into each other multiple times, when you see that person the second time, it's not a nod, it's a smile. And then when you see them the third, fourth, fifth, sixth time, you're like, you're like, you're like deep friends. You're like, we're all in this running, what are we doing, right? So there's this sense. <coughs> Of com- of camaraderie. Now, I, one day I'm I'm doing a longer run, training run, and I'm running counterclockwise, and there's this other gentleman uh, running clockwise. I'll call him Running Man. He literally had a shirt that said Running Man. Okay, I'm not making this up. And as we're running, we see each other. We do the nod. We do the smile. We do the greeting. We're we're fast friends now because we've been running for a long time. But there's one point in my training run toward the end where I'm getting tired. I can feel it. I'm slowing down. My stride doesn't look as strong. And running man's been seeing me for a couple of hours now. So I'm coming around the corner, and he's coming around the other way, and he sees me. And he stops in the middle of the road, and he does this. He goes... You go, you go, you go. What do you think I did? I went. Running man told me to do it. Uh, His words were encouraging, and I actually did that, and I finished my training run. Okay, now take that story, and let's just set it over here on the side because there's another part of the story. So um, uh, later on that year, I I had done the training, and I uh, was running the, the LA Marathon. Now, if any of you know anything about, or have heard about marathon running, there's something in the middle toward the end of the race, about mile 18 to 22, called the wall. The wall is the place, as a runner, where you're getting to that point where you're close enough to the finish that you can begin to sort of anticipate finishing. And at the same time, you're not that close to the finish where you still have some work to do. And anything can happen in a marathon. Sometimes in this space, you're feeling strong and you're thinking to yourself, I just have a 10 kilometer to go. go. I'm getting my stride. I'm going to make my goal. There are other times where your body is shutting down and you're thinking to yourself, I just need to put one foot in front of the other and I hope that I make it. For a marathoner, the wall, mile 18 to 22, is the most vulnerable space in the marathon. So I'm running the LA Marathon, and it's mile 20, and I'm in this vulnerable space. And I'm thinking to myself, am I going to make it or am I not? How is my body feeling and everything else? And I look over to my right, and I see a line of dear people in lawn chairs with donuts and venti coffees and as i'm running by they raised their cups to me and they said you're almost there ladies and gentlemen we're friends now we i've been talking for a while i am an ordained minister of the gospel people call me reverend i am a doctor that trains students how to be pastors but i need to just confess to you in that moment I wanted to run up to the people in the lawn chairs and knock those venti coffees out of their hands. Why? Because comforting words from comfortable spaces are never comforting. Comforting words from comfortable spaces are never comforting. Do you know who I thought of in that moment? Running man. Someone who ran with me, who sweat with me, who knew what it was like to run out there. And I heard his words, you go, you go, you go. I sometimes wonder if we have a problem in our relationships where we all have good intentions. So I'm not blaming anybody for this. But when we see somebody in a vulnerable space, It's easy to shout from a comfortable space words like, I hope it works out. Praying for you. It's going to be all right. And they ring hollow. They actually are hurtful. Have you ever been on the receiving side of that? Like these words are supposed to be kind, but you're kind of angry on the inside because it just doesn't, feel close enough. The words that I want to hear are not the ones that are shot from a distance, but they're whispered up close. I'm with you. I see you. We're in this together. Yeah, it's going to be all right, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to leave your side. I think the gospel is filled with people who create relational space that say, I'm with you. Do you know someone that's struggling I bet you do. Struggle with them. Do you know someone that's hurting? Hurt with them. Do you know someone who's grieving? Grieve with them. Do you know someone who's doubting? Doubt with them. Do you know someone that's going through a hard time? Hang in there with them. Because when we do that, we echo the very words of Jesus as we read in Matthew 22, where Jesus, before he ascends up to heaven, says, "'I will be with you always till the very end of the age.'" Now think about what that means. The resurrected Jesus ascends on high. We just did the creed, right? Ascends on high, sits at the right hand of the Father, and I guarantee as he is sitting on that heavenly throne, he does not have a donut in his hand, And Aventi Coffee saying, you're almost there. He says, by my spirit, I am with you. You go, you go, you go. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think I just need someone that's telling me that. Because that's good news. When we proclaim to each other, I am with you. It's good news not just for you and me. That's good news for everyone. Soldiers, I'm for you. Athletes, I'm with you. Farmers, I believe in you. Out of all these metaphors, this is the one that um, I I can't relate to the most because I've never had the privilege of um, uh, being a, a farmer. But we live in a part of the country where farming is really, really crucial. Um, something that we're proud of, something that is in our heritage of being in the Midwest. But I find that, I don't care if it was biblical times or up till now, all the technology that's changed when it's come with farming, there's still something that we do that has not changed. We take the seed, we put it in the ground, and we believe that it will grow. That's just great theology. Paul says there are people that plant, there are people that water, but God makes it grow. Think about the formula there. Make the investment, believe it will grow. The problem is in our society is that we've reversed that formula. Most people feel as though they need to produce and show the fruit and maybe we will invest in you. Okay? This is what young people feel all the time. There is, like, there are just, like, overwhelmed with anxiety and perfectionism because to be average is to be uh, unseen. This is true in their spiritual lives as well. I did a study uh, with college students and we were talking about their faith and doubt experiences. And uh, college students uh, said to me, they said, Steve, look, uh, uh, there are things that I'm learning at college. There are experiences that I'm having that are different than what I grew up with and I'm trying to figure out how to make sense of all that. And, and I think I'm going to figure it out. But what my bigger concern is, is this. Is that if I express my questions to the faith community that I came from, my mom will be upset. My dad will be angry. My youth pastor will be disappointed with me. And my church will put me on the prayer list. And ladies and gentlemen, nobody really wants to be on the prayer list. But you, but you see what's going on there. Uh, Intellectual doubt for a young person can lead to relational fallout. And they are overwhelmed with guilt and shame about that. I talk with older types that as our kids get older, you know, when they're younger, like parents always talk with each other and like, how do you do this? How do you do that? Let's figure it out. I find that parents, as their kids get older, become more and more isolated because they're shamed at their parenting. They wish they did things differently. I've had uh, parents and grandparents say to me, if I could just do it over again with my kids, I wish I could. And we have this sense of, of failure and, um, and sadness over that as well, a sense of guilt. Uh, but, but when have we ever wanted to live in a world filled with guilt and shame, the good news of the gospel uh, is about hope, it's about grace, it's about second chances, it's tough enough out there. We've got young people that are trying to make it in a world where the rules are constantly changing and it's overwhelming. We've got older types that are trying to remain relevant in a world that is addicted to new and improved. And it is so hard. And don't we all just want to be seen? To be known? To be loved? To be saying that we're worth it? That we're a good investment? I think we do. And what I find fascinating is this, is that if we look at the Gospels, we find that Jesus constantly is saying to his followers, believe in me, believe in me, believe in me. But I think there's a subtext. If we read in between the lines, Jesus is saying, believe in me, believe in me, believe in me. Wait for it. Because I believe in you. You're worth it. You matter. You're a good investment. And I will give everything because that's what I think that you are. I think we can create gospel relational space when we actually say that to each other. I believe in you. What if we caught each other doing things right more than catching each other doing things wrong? We see that and we go, that's beautiful, do that again. What if we reminded each other that they're worth it? What if we actually said, yes, I believe in you? I think there's just a lot of people that need to hear that, and I think that we all are the type of people that can actually give that, because that, I believe, expresses an amazing gospel that's good news, and it's good news uh, for everyone. So as we think about this idea of proclaiming the gospel, as we think about how we create relational space to do that intergenerationally and with the people that we love, I I wonder a couple of things. I wonder, uh, first of all, if uh, perhaps, um, whether you're here online, I wonder if you just needed to hear that today, that there is a God with good news that says, I'm for you. I am with you. I believe in you. And what might it mean this week, as you've thought about this perhaps, like what faces came to mind for you? Who needs a phone call, a text message, a letter, someone that you love and care for. Maybe there's even a tough situation where things aren't resolved. For you to take that step to say, hey, I just want you to know I'm for you. I just want you to know I'm with you. I just want you to know I, I-, I believe in you. I-, I know that there are always tough relationships that won't be solved by a sermon. But I think the hope of the gospel, the hope of the resurrection, is that there's always second chances. There's always possibility. There's always the chance for us to rekindle those relationships. And when we do, it opens up the possibility for good news. That's good news for us. That's good news for those who we love. That's good news for the whole world. And so, my friends, may you know the love and grace of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. May you know that God is for you, that God is with you, and that God believes in you, and may you echo those words to those in your relational spheres, and may you know God's grace and peace. Thank you.